Well, good morning. Well, the, the news on the celebrity front hasn't been very good lately. Just a couple weeks ago, famous designer Kate Spade committed suicide. She was 56. Right after her came Anthony Bourdain, famous chef. He was 61. Many are still feeling the pain of Robin Williams' suicide. He was 66. This week I watched a, a film on Ernest Hemingway, famous Nobel Prize author, who committed suicide. He was 61. Now all of these were at the height of their careers, and their powers, their notoriety. Interesting, there's been an uptick in suicides every year since 1999 in our country. And the middle-aged group, that is 45 to 64, had the largest rate of increase. What's going on here? For a little bit of help, I, I turned to that noted theologian, Jim Carrey. <laughs> who would, And I did that because he was interviewed recently about, uh, well, it's been some time ago, his former girlfriend, a, a girlfriend of three years, committed suicide. And there was the usual celebrity charge and countercharge afterwards, many trying to prove that he was responsible for her death. In court, he was absolved of all guilt. And recently, he was interviewed about that subject. And specifically, he was asked about getting to the place where you have everything everybody has ever desired and realizing you're still unhappy. And that you can still be unhappy is a shock when you have accomplished everything you ever dreamt of and more. That was the question. Indicating that for many of us, our, our thought process is very simple. We simply think if we, if we could just get that big raise or that new house or could finally have children or and you go on and on and on with all the if-onlys in your life and then you get all those if-onlys then, Kerry says, in many ways, achieving all your goals provides the opposite of fulfillment. Instead, it lays bare the truth that there is nothing that you can purchase, nothing you can possess, nothing that you can achieve that will make you feel fulfilled over the long term. Now, we understand regarding suicide, there could be chemical imbalance, there, there can be a number of other issues involved, but, but Kerry narrows it down to American culture. He says, most Americans are depressed, anxious, or suicidal because something is wrong with our culture, not because something is wrong with them. Well, he's on to something. If we buy into a culture that is dedicated primarily to the pursuit of happiness. Now, he shifts the blame to the culture, but if we buy into it, this culture with its false promises and its empty values, then we're in trouble. I suspect that that may be why you're in church this morning. You seek something more solid, something deeper, something more satisfying, something dependable to build your life on. Well, I'm starting again where I started a couple weeks ago in the sermon on joy. I skipped a section. We're going to come back to that section. By the way, by the time we finish this series, you will have caught on, you may have already caught on, that 
the nine qualities that are listed as the fruit of the Spirit are also closely integrated that I said it precisely the way the Scripture says it, the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruits of the Spirit. As if to suggest you cannot have one without the other. So, when I was talking about love, I couldn't talk about love without talking about joy. And when I was talking about joy, I couldn't talk about joy without talking about peace. Now, this morning, the subject is peace, and I can't talk about that without talking about patience or forbearance. And the list continues. By the time we get all through, you'll, you'll understand that what Paul is teaching us about is the well-integrated, whole, mature person with all the parts supporting all the other parts. Well, today the emphasis is on peace. And we go back to Philippians 4, the section that, as I said, I skipped. And we read. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. And I, I should remind you that Paul is writing from prison. And he's pretty much been left alone in prison. He's had a few people who have come to his aid, particularly, specifically, his friends in the church in Philippi, these people that he's writing to. Indeed, you were concerned, he writes, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content I've learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. In other words, I have learned not to, divide, to define myself or evaluate my self-worth on the basis of how much I have or how little I have. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Now, this does not mean exactly what I used to think it meant. I, I memorized this in youth group in the King James Version, which was, I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. And as an idealistic youth, eager to make my mark in the world, and then as a young minister, eager to, to have our church do great things, I quoted this scripture, often expecting the extraordinary. Now, to be honest with you, very often we got the extraordinary. God does wonderful things. But it's not the extraordinary that Paul is writing about right here. Here, he's talking about something different. He's, he's explaining the secret of his peace, his contentment, in spite of his imprisonment, in spite of what he is having to get along without. He's giving Christ the credit. He's drawing in a strength, not his own, which comes from above. And what he's really saying, writing from prison, is, I'm doing just fine, thank you. I have to do without, but I'm doing just fine. History's sages, by the way, not just the religious ones, have pretty much agreed that, that a secret to peace and contentment resides in what we have learned we can do without. Now here, Paul touches on both extremes. He can have plenty, he says, including prosperity, celebrity, uh, personal success, all of that and more. Or, at the other extreme, he can have nothing except imprisonment and a hand-to-mouth existence. Neither extreme defines who he is, and neither extreme disturbs his fundamental peace, his equilibrium. That's worth exploring. Now, for many, many years, I've, I made a, a little joke. Very often, 
around food. It's come back to my mind often here. And I just said simply, I can resist anything but temptation. And then I would indulge. And the corollary to that, which I've used often, is I can, I can tolerate anything but discomfort. Now, that has to be a joke, or I'm in trouble. Because discomfort is exactly what we learn to tolerate. And temptation is exactly what we learn to resist, if we would have peace of mind. Peace of mind is largely a matter of attention, what we focus on. If we beam the flashlight of our attention on our negative circumstances, on what we don't have, on what we don't get, or on how we're being mistreated, if we, if we constantly attend to the gloom and doom voices in our hearts, in our heads, I really should say, then we'll, we'll surely be overcome by stress. Now, most of the things that we worry about, get ourselves concerned about, are, are what we call now first world problems. They're not the problems of the third world, the developing world. They're the problems of the affluent. Uh, <laughs> When I retired the, the second time, we took a motorhome trip that I've told you about around the country for a year and a half, bought, sold the house and bought an old motorhome, which uh, consistently, uh, predictably, broke down about every other day. In, in fact, I, when it was all over, uh, I, I said I can't remember more than two consecutive days without something going wrong. Now, one of our Velcro sons is a mechanical genius, and uh, when I broke down, I would call Jeff. I would describe the problem. He would diagnose it. And altogether too often, he would say, it sounds like an operator error to me. <laughs> His way of saying, you, you did it again, dear old dad. He's not the only Velcro son I have, by the way, who's not altogether respectful. I, with the internet problems and computer problems, I call... I call Brian, diagnose the problem, and he tells me what to do. Well, I called him on one occasion. I was having trouble, and uh, he was busy. He was tied up. I, I, I couldn't talk to him. So I kept fiddling and kept fiddling, and believe it or not, I got it to work. So I sent him a quick email telling him not to worry about it. It's taken care of. I fixed it. And he wrote me back, and he asked who are you and what have you done with my father? <laughs> well, most of my problems are like those. They're, they're first world problems. Somebody living on the edge of poverty doesn't worry about how to keep a motorhome going or fix a problem with the computer or the internet. Their problems have more to do with how to find food today. How to find something to wear. Oh, I don't mean a wardrobe. I mean one change of clothes. For many don't have that. How to find protection from the human predators that are prowling in my neighborhood. Those are real problems. And Paul here is having to deal with something Certainly more serious than I have had to deal with. Having enough food to eat was a problem if you were imprisoned. Not having the freedom to move around if you're locked up. Helplessness 
when you're caught in the entanglements of the judicial system, facing death. Yet it's in the midst of this that he writes of his contentment, his peace. Well, for him, peace of mind, the peace of mind that comes from faith in God, it isn't a false peace. It, it doesn't come from the dulling of the consciousness. You, you remember that Karl Marx, the father of communism, scorned religion as the opiate of the people, dulling the mind, dulling the consciousness. That's not what Paul is writing about at all. One theologian says today it would be more correct to see much spirituality as the religious equivalent of Librium and Valium. That's not the peace that passes understanding that we're learning about here. So, I want to look quickly at four elements that will bring peace to us. Peace depends in the first place. Peace depends on who you depend on. Jesus says in John 14, But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I don't give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. Peace depends on who you depend on. Jesus says in the 16th chapter of John, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you, you'll have trouble. But take heart. I've overcome the world. When I was reviewing these scriptures on peace, by the way, I, I kept hearing in the back of my mind, Handel's Messiah. And that part that comes from Isaiah 9. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. I so wish I could sing. I'd sing for you. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government shall rest upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful. Counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting Father. And here it is. The Prince of Peace. So Paul would write in Romans, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And if we have peace with God, if, if, if things are good between us and God, then, to jump to Philippians 4, do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God and the peace of God which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That last part, I want to pause here for just a minute. What do you suppose Paul has in mind here with this phrase? And the peace that passes all understanding. We, we quote that a lot. Well, what does it mean? Is it a peace that defies logic? Is it a peace that seems absurd by the standards of worldly practicality and expedience? It does seem to be a peace that doesn't generally make sense, but nevertheless is there, based on hope from God and the guidance of the Holy Spirit, even in the midst of the most horrific circumstances. I'm not having trouble talking to you about this because I've been in some really horrific circumstances. 
and experience that peace that I would have trouble describing to you. It does pass, surpass understanding, but it is there. It depends on who you depend on. It depends on what you focus on. I, I heard a story about a mountaineer, I think from the part of the country I used to live in, only there we'd call him a hillbilly, who, who just spent his whole life in the mountains, but he came to town one day and was with a friend, a townie, went by a grocery store, saw a stock of bananas hanging there. He'd never seen bananas before in his life. And his friend said, want to try one, Jeff? And the old guy said, no, I reckon not. I got so many tastes now I can't satisfy. I, I ain't aiming to take on any more. Well, there's wisdom in the old guy, isn't there? I got so many tastes now I can't satisfy. And if I can't satisfy my tastes, but they're there, pretty hard to feel contented, isn't it? Here's, this one is brutally honest, Romans 8, 6. The mind governed by the flesh is death. But the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. It's about what you're focusing on. You know this story so well. Let me read it to you. Jesus and his disciples were on their way. He came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Now, this is interesting. Martha invited him in. Now she's griping because her sister's not helping her. Don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You're worried and upset about many things. But few things are needed. I, I, I try to teach this passage to my wife. <laughs> when we have company coming, I mean, we just have to clean the whole place up. And we've got to put out the best of everything. And they're, I mean, they're my friends. Let them see what we're really like. I don't think that's the immediate application of this passage, but it does come to mind. Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed. Indeed, only one. He's talking about focus. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Now, I'm a fan of Martha, so I'm not putting down the Marthas of this world, but, but I'm not a fan of being all tied up in a knot because you're anxious about so many things. That's what Jesus is addressing here. So we have to think through, of the many things that claim our attention, what, what really matters? In our hierarchy of values, what's at the top? Focus on what matters. Peace depends on who your friends are. That comes from the whole of this letter. Paul is writing 
to his friends. And the language that he uses throughout this letter is more intimate, more friendly, more as a friend than any of his other writings. And, and the truth is, he's expressing a, a need for them, even as he's giving thanks to them. Well, we all need friends. And we all need good friends. The mother who worries about whether her children have good friends or not is probably a good mother. I will never forget a young woman who came for counseling many years ago. And in the course of telling me her plight, she told me about her marriage and about their practices. And she was married to a man whose idea of a really good time was to get some friends together, each of them bring their six-packs, rent a few porno flicks, and party. And I don't need to spell out to you any more than that what kind of a party it was. Why I remember this is that after she had tears in her eyes. She said, my marriage is being destroyed. Her, their self-respect was being eroded. And I got to tell you, there was no peace in her heart or in that home because they were doing the wrong things with the wrong people. You've got to have friends, and they've got to be the right kinds of friends. Danny and I were talking about Ohana groups here at the church and how interesting it is, and this is true of every church I've been in, how true it is that if you're involved in a small fellowship, meeting regularly, you know them, they know you, you know their problems, they know your problems, you are in the word together, you're building each other up. And it's interesting that such people seldom need an external counselor. They nearly, nearly I'll put it the other way, they almost never have to go see a psychiatrist because their best friends are good medicine for them. Do you remember that, that, that poem that has made been made famous by Alcoholics Anonymous. It was written by Reinhold Niebuhr, The Serenity Prayer. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. There's a reason that that prayer has become so famous. May I read it again? Grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. The courage to change the things I can. And the wisdom to know the difference. It's so simple. So profound. What interests me about that is that the Alcoholics Anonymous leadership glommed on to that prayer because of the wisdom in the prayer. But why I'm telling you about it right now is because I'm talking about the need to have good friends. And that prayer guides those AA friends who are helping each other to stay sober, to live life. Honestly, folks, that's what we're doing in the church. We're helping each other to stay sober, to get through, or as we say it, muddle through. We're here in part, I, I, I remember a, a, another counselee who confessed that he came to church for social reasons. I said, <laughs> so do I. I need the right kind of friends. And then the fourth element. Peace depends on where you're going. 
Here's Romans chapter 15, verse 13. May the God of hope... Now, every time you hear that word hope, look forward, because hope is always about the future. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Overflowing with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit means that you are looking forward to tomorrow. Because you know that God is already in front of you waiting to invite you into your future. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him. So that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Here, joy and peace from the God of hope all come together. Because we're always, as Christians, always looking forward. Even when we die. So Paul could write in the first part of this wonderful Philippian letter, when he wasn't sure he would ever get out of prison, but maybe would die there. He said, well, for me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will be mean fruitful labor for me. And what shall I choose? I don't know. There's a toss-up. I was in my mid-30s in Indianapolis when my next-door neighbor preacher, Don Wilmoth, went into the hospital. I went to call on him. He was 36. I was 36. He'd had a terrible heart attack. Did not know whether he'd make it. I stood on one side of the bed. His wife was on the other side of the bed as he looked at us weakly but with a smile and said, reminiscent of this verse, Either way, I win. Either way. If I leave the hospital, he was saying, I win. If I don't get out of here alive, I win. The peace came. Because he knew where he was going. One, one other one. Joy and I were in Australia a couple years ago. When we got a phone call from dear friend George Widmer, Joanne had had uh, some really terrible news. She had cancer, just learned it, and she was in the final stage. Now, Joanne's been my friend, well, she knew me before I knew her. She knew me my entire life. I had to grow up a little bit before I knew her. So, these, these dear friends, for a lifetime. Will you come and do the funeral? Of course. How much time do I have? You better come right away. So we went. What Joanne learned when she was given the bad word was that she didn't have much time. In fact, that was her question. How much time do I have? The doctor said, three weeks to three months. Joanne said, I'll take three weeks. She knew where she was going. She quit eating, took a little liquid. She'd made up her mind. She was ready to see the Lord, and that would be fine. Now, I'm talking about a woman who had a big family and a loving life. But she recognized the time had come, and she could go in peace. Finally, after she hadn't eaten for days, 
The hospice nurse said, you know, Mrs. Widner, not eating is not going to affect when you die. You might just as well eat. And Joanne pondered that for a minute and said, okay, I'll have peppermint ice cream. <laughs> and she had peppermint ice cream to the end. And it came soon. Joy and I were there. The family was there. We didn't, we didn't get to say the final, <clears throat> the, 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 well, yes, we were there for the final goodbye. Didn't get to stay for the funeral after all. But you would have been so pleased if you'd have been in the room with us. She's dying. The family is mourning and rejoicing. She knew where she was going. Now, neither of these persons was a, a celebrity, neither was wealthy, neither was powerful. They, they're just folks, like you and me. But folks who, who depended on God in all circumstances, who kept the focus in life on what really mattered without being anxious about many things, who chose the right kind of friends, friends who built them up and did not tear them down, and who always knew where they were going throughout their lives and through their deaths. And the result, they did experience the peace that passeth all understanding, except in their cases, it wasn't past all understanding. They understood. <laughs>